Well, good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1 as we continue this morning through our walk uh, in the creation week. This morning we are going uh, to begin by reading the first 13 verses of Genesis chapter 1 in which we will see the first three days of creation. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the words of the only true and living God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening. And there was morning. The first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his holy and infallible word. You may be seated. Well, it's so good to be together again this morning to worship our risen Savior and King together and to not only worship Him as His people, but also to have Him rule over us from His throne, from the right hand of the Father. And so what a joy it is to know that He has not only gathered us together this morning to receive our worship, but He has also gathered us together this morning to minister to us by his word, through his spirit, that we would live resurrected life in this old creation. He is risen. Amen. Well, let us now seek to live in that reality. It's not just something we say, but it is a reality that we are citizens and ambassadors for that kingdom of light and resurrected life. And so may he use our time together this morning to help us think more clearly about that reality and to live that reality out in our lives more and more each day. Well, we've spent the last two weeks looking at the first day of creation, and so this morning in our time together, uh, we're going to focus our attention on the second and third days of creation that we see here in verses 6 through 13 of our passage. And we're going to walk through these verses in two points. Our first point is details, where we're going to do just that. We're going to look at the details of days two and three of creation. And our second point this morning is purpose, uh, where we're going to go beyond just the physical details of what God creates on days two and three in order to look at the way in which what He has made on days two and three gets used in the Bible to serve and instruct us about spiritual realities. 
Well, before we get started uh, seeking to do this, let us go to him in prayer, asking for his help as we go through our passage together. Let's pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, our Savior, who is at his right hand, and our spirit that proceeds from Father and Son to minister to us and to work and enjoy in us. We come to you this morning, Father, asking that you would receive our worship as we have offered it up to you in your Son's name with all its weaknesses and frailties. Father, we have offered it to you in faith, asking that you would be pleased with it, asking that you would use it in our own lives to stir up zeal within us for our worship of you. And Father, we ask that you would uh, do that now in our time together. Father, that you would uh, use your word, the reading and the hearing of it, and in a few minutes, the teaching and preaching of it to sanctify us, to conform us to the image of your Son, to help us to see everything in this world uh, as the reality for what it is, not a secular or a naturalistic or materialistic reality, but a reality of that you are moving everything uh, to glorify your Son, that you are uniting all things in your Son, that you are putting all things under his feet. Help us to see those things this morning and as his people to be encouraged by them and for those among us who do not know him, who refuse to repent of our sins and trust in him, Father, we ask that you would grant repentance and faith through the proclamation of your word this morning. Father, we ask these things not only for ourselves, but we know that we are just a part of the universal church here in the world, in our generation, and so we ask that you would be with our brothers and sisters who are likewise gathered together on this Lord's Day to worship you. Father, we ask that you would be with Covenant Reformed Baptist Church in Illinois and Baldwin Community Church in Todd. Father, work among them. Sanctify them in the truth. Cause your word to be paid attention to and held up with honor and esteemed. Help it to be rightly divided. Help it to not just be heard, but to be understood and then applied and lived out in their lives. Oh, Father, do this work among our brothers and sisters. Use them in their communities to see your kingdom come and your will being done here on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we also lift our brothers and sisters up throughout the world who must endure persecution as they seek to worship you. Father, we lift up our brothers and sisters in Turkey this morning as they seek to gather. Father, we ask that you would encourage them, that you would give them the grace that they need uh, to be able to focus uh, their thoughts on your worship and not on uh, potential persecution that could come through their doors at any moment, but that they would entrust those things to you and trust that you will give them the grace that they need. Father, use them in Turkey to spread your gospel, to spread the light of it in that dark place. Father, as we turn our attention now to this passage of Scripture that you and your providence have put before us today, we ask that you would help us to understand it ourselves, to draw out of it not only the milk, but the marrow and the meat of it to nourish ourselves, to be strengthened, and Father, that it would so work in us by your Spirit that it would Urge us on to the love and the good works that you have prepared for us that we are to walk in. 
And so we ask that you would do these things among us, and we ask it in your son's name. Amen. President uh, Ulysses S. Grant was introduced to the game of golf by a man from Scotland. This Scotsman, eager to teach the President of the United States about this great game, took him to the first hole that they were going to play, and after teeing it up, the Scotsman, ready to impress the President, took a mighty swing, and he missed. <laughs> Instead of hitting the ball, his club hit the turf and threw dirt all over the President's beard while the ball remained peacefully on top of the tee. Well, embarrassed and not assuaded, the Scotsman took another swing, and again he missed the ball. President Grant waited patiently through six mighty swings and misses, and he quietly whispered to the person beside him about this introduction he was receiving to this new game, there seems to be a fair amount of exercise in the game, but I fail to see the purpose of the ball. <laughs> now, golf can be a game with a fair amount of exercise, depending on how you do it. And for those of you who have played golf before, you know that it is also a game with a fair amount of frustration and even embarrassment, maybe not as much as the Scotsman experienced. But if you have played golf for any length of time, you know well why there is a book about golf entitled A Good Walk Spoiled. Now, what President Grant said in that story is funny about failing to see the purpose of the ball. It is funny because the purpose of the golf ball is self-evident in the game of golf. It's fundamental to the game like a bat is to baseball or a hoop is to basketball. It's so fundamental that without it, you can't even conceive of how the game would be played. Well, this morning, as we begin to look at the details of days two and three of creation here in our first point, we must again, not by jumping straight into those details, but rather we must begin by looking at something that's underneath the details, something that's fundamental more fundamental than the details of our passage, something that must shape our understanding of the details that we are going to go through. We must begin by realizing why these details are here in the first place. Why do we find, as we read through Genesis 1, this constant pattern of, and God said, which occurs eight times in Genesis 1, followed by the reports of, and there was, or and it was so, which happens seven times, followed by a declaration, and God saw that it was good. Again, occurring seven times. Why this constant pattern in Genesis 1, and God said, and it was so, and God saw that it was good. We've already talked at length about this answer as we've been going through Genesis, but you know that I like to repeat and to review things. But I repeat it again this morning because it is so fundamental to our understanding of the days of creation in Genesis 1, but it's also so easy for us to forget because it's not right there on the surface of what we read, but we simply cannot forget it if we're going to understand this passage correctly. Genesis is a book written by a man named Moses, where Moses is introducing and instructing Israel about the God who had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And remember, the people of Israel had been enslaved by the Egyptians who had their own stories about creation, a people who had their own gods that the Israelites had been enslaved by for some 400 years. And after the Israelites saw with their own eyes their God, Yahweh, defeat the Egyptian idols in the plagues and the Exodus event after crossing the Red Sea and coming to Mount Sinai, Genesis is a book where Moses is instructing these Israelites that it's not just that their God was stronger than the gods of Egypt, but there are actually no other gods besides Yahweh. 
And so Israel must not worship other gods. Hear, O Israel, I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. And this temptation was not only a temptation for the people of Israel while they were in Egypt, but they would, it would be a temptation that they would fall prey to right at the foot of Mount Sinai in the golden calf incident. And it was, a, it was a temptation that future generations of Israelites would also fall victim to when they made it into the promised land. Because remember, in the promised land, Israel was surrounded by nations that believed that it was the sexual relationships of their gods that determined when crops would grow or even if crops would grow. And so Israel as an agrarian people, dependent upon their crops to feed themselves, to feed and provide for their animals. If Israel had a bad year of farming, we can see how it would be tempting for them to look at their neighboring countries who perhaps had plenty of food that season, and instead of seeing it as a test of their faith, a test of their trust in Yahweh to provide for them, they would succumb to pragmatism and offer sacrifices to the false gods of the nations surrounding them and worshiping them. And we know that Israel eventually did just that, with many offering their own children as sacrifices to Moloch. And so, beloved, Genesis 1 is instructing Israel that their God alone is the creator of all things. Their God speaks and it is. Their God creates, and it is good. Their God who created earth and sea, plants and fruit trees is the only God that they must worship. Yahweh is the only God who they must depend upon and, and trust in. For when we read Genesis 1, where are the gods of Egypt? Where is Molech in our passage today? Where are these idols, when God created the heavens and the earth. I hope that you can see this and see why Genesis is here. It is a declaration that there are no gods who need to be aroused in order for the earth to yield its food. But rather, this lifeless earth that we see here in day three of our passage today brings forth vegetation only because of God's creative and declarative word. All of creation and all of the good things of creation that Israel needs are not dependent on the capricious sexual desires and activities of nature's gods. But rather, their God spoke them into existence and created them for the purpose of providing provisions for those who were to love him and keep his commandments. So with this background in mind, remembering why these details are here in the first place, let's look at the details of our passage today before we look at some themes. I included the first five verses in our reading today because it is the heavens and the earth of verse 1 that in verse 2, we're without form and void. It is these same heavens and earth that in our passage today, on days 2 and 3 of creation, are given their shape and put to their divinely determined purpose and use. So we can see in our passage this morning that day 2 of creation begins in verse 6, again with the omnipotent word of God declaring there to be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And unlike the creation stories of Egypt or Canaan in Genesis, there is no struggle hinted at, there is no conflict hinted at anywhere in our passage. We can see that God said, He has spoken, and we can see at the end of verse 7, and it was so. This expanse of verse 6 is named heaven by God in verse 8, and it's what we call the sky. 
We are instructed at the end of verse 6 and end of verse 7 that God created the sky in order to separate the waters below from the waters above, or in our modern terminology, to separate the oceans, the seas, the rivers, the streams from the watery clouds above that move around in our lower atmosphere. And we will be instructed next week that this expanse is also inclusive of what we call space or that expanse that is beyond our atmosphere. Now, when we think about the space between ground and sky, is there anything in all of creation that we presume upon? or take for granted more than the expanse of day two. The space that you are sitting in right now, that I am standing in right now, the space that allows us to move, the space that we breathe in, that we live our daily lives in, is there anything more than, that we take for granted than that we have space to move around and get up out of the bed in the morning and go to work in the morning or to see birds fly through or planes fly through? Beloved, this space that we presume upon, even right now, isn't just here. It's not just some evolutionary accident. It wasn't some kind of inevitability. No, beloved, our God created this space, and He right now is upholding this space that you live in, that you move in, that you breathe in, in order to serve His purposes that we are reading about here on day two of creation. God is separating the, the waters here on day two so that on day three, dry land could appear. And the sky is made and the dry land appears so that there would be a place for God to put his image bearers in. And that they would be able to live in that space and they would be able to have all that they needed to live on in that space. A place where vegetation could grow and land creatures could dwell and flourish. Beloved, day two is the space in which God has made for mankind to exercise dominion and to fill the earth and to subdue it. And it is the space that he one day sent his only son into the world to glorify himself by redeeming fallen man. My point in saying all of this is not only to point out the details of day two and three of creation, but also to shake us out of our presumptuousness of something is that we take for granted as the sky. The sky that our planes fly through, the ground that our spring gardens grow in, that we stand on and walk on, the space that you can move and breathe in. Beloved, these things are not brute facts. They are not facts that exist independent of your God and Creator. But they are things He created by the word of His power and they are things that continue to exist by that same word. And they are things that we should be thankful for and not presume upon. So breathe the air. Feel the space that you are in right now. And consider the power and the wisdom of our God such that when you are looking at the passing clouds or seeing birds or planes passing by, that they are, those are not just facts of life, but they are sources of thanksgiving and praise to your God who is able to spread out the sky, as the psalmist says, like a tent. And because your God has done this well, and he is doing it and has done it for your good, you ought to join with the psalmist who says at the beginning of that same psalm, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens as a tent. Beloved, let these things that we presume upon be sources that we draw from to give thanksgiving and instruct us that there is literally nowhere where we can go where we do not have ample reason to give thanks and praise 
and glory to our God. Well, as we continue to look at the details of our passage, we move now from the expanse of the second day to the earth and vegetation of the third day in verses 9 through 13. We can see in verse 9 that after God had separated the waters above from the waters below, that he gathered the waters below into one space, into one place, in order that he would cause dry land to appear. And again, consider the vastness of the oceans. Consider the power that we know that they have when tsunamis rise or hurricanes come or even what we can feel when we just go down to the beach and put our toes in the water and then move from the awesome power and vastness of the oceans and be in awe of the power of your God who merely speaks and the waters obey him. The God who merely tells dry land to appear. And as we read again at the end of verse 9, and it was so. In verse 10, we see God naming the dry land earth and the gathered waters seas. Again, showing his unquestionable dominion over them as creator. And we must also remember our Savior's unquestionable dominion over them as well. For God's dominion and his rule over the earth and sea did not end at creation, but they have continued throughout all of history. And they have always served the purpose of glorifying God in redemption, and especially so when our Savior showed his authority in heaven and on earth, when after being awakened from his sleep by his fearful disciples, stood on a boat and commanded the raging sea, Peace, be still. And what did the wind and sea do? They bowed down to their creator in calmness. Beloved, recall these things to your mind and realize that this creator who speaks in the beginning and it was so, this savior who speaks and the wind and the waves obey him, this creator and savior is the same one that right now is ruling over you that right now is loving you as his bride, his church, and who is ministering to you in unseen ways right now by his word and spirit as he sends it forth to accomplish his purposes. And if you are his, you know his purposes and your life is to bless you and sanctify you and conform you to the image of his son to make you holy this is what our Savior is doing right now and who, and who in days past and in days to come is ordering all of creation, including earth, wind, and sea, to see to it, not that they just do what they do, but to see to it that you will inherit the eternal salvation that he has purchased for you. And as we continue to go through our passage, it is remarkable here that as we can see in verses 11 to 13, God who is named day and night, heaven, earth, and sea, it is remarkable that he does not name the vegetation that he speaks into existence in verse 11. And also that he later will not name the living creatures that he will bring forth on days 5 and 6, but rather he leaves that activity to his image bearer, Adam. Showing that God, who exercises dominion in creating and naming, is going to delegate. He is going to give some of his dominion to his image bearers who are going to name vegetation and animals and who will exercise that delegated dominion over all living things as they feel and subdue and cultivate the earth and its creatures. But as we finish this first point, of looking at the details of our passage today, we can see in verses 11 to 13 that here on day three, God brings forth from this earth that he has formed and brought out of the watery deep. God causes this earth to bring forth plants and trees 
that again do not depend on the arousal or sexual activity of the gods to produce their fruit, but rather the one and only true and living God causes them to come forth and to contain their own seed and for each to produce after its own kind. God speaks, and it was so. Here in day three, we see that God intends there to be regularity, there to be order, there to be correspondence between what He creates and what His creation produces. God intends apple trees to produce apples, banana trees to produce bananas. And beloved, again, these things are not just this way just because... No, they are this way because God intends to use these things that He has made to glorify Himself and not just by providing food for the animals and His image bearers, but also in the way that we looked at last week. Just as God uses water and spirit and light and darkness as recurring themes to instruct us, His image bearers and His covenant people through what He has made, so too... He uses the regularity, the order, the correspondence of the plants and their fruit to instruct us how His people, that just as apple trees are to produce apples, so too Christians are to produce Christian fruit. And in so doing, God has ordered regularity and correspondence in our lives, not just in the fruit tree business. He has ordered regularity and correspondence in our lives such that he has told us that we will know one another by the fruit we bear. And we will know false converts by the fruit they bear. We will know wolves among us by the fruit they bear. And this leads us to our second point today, purpose. God created the heavens and the earth in verse 1, but notice that he does not call them good until he forms them and puts them to their purpose in our passage today in days 2 and 3. In verse 3, light is good, and it is good that it is separated from darkness. In verses 6 to 8, the sky is not initially declared good on day 2 until God brings together earth and seas under the sky on day 3. And in verse 10, we see that dry land and gathered seas under the sky are declared good. And lastly, in our passage today in verse 12, vegetation and fruit trees that can reproduce after their kind are declared good. What I want us to see here is that none of these things are declared to be good by God until they are able to serve their purpose. And their purpose is to be inhabited by and sustain God's image bearers. Their purpose is to be used from creation until present day to see to it that you would inherit salvation. Heaven and earth in the beginning were uninhabitable. And as such were considered, as we can see in verse 2, without form and void. They were just created things waiting for word and spirit to form them into the reasons for which they were created. Beloved, the point of highlighting all of these things in our minds is to highlight them so that we would see that God glorifying Himself through His image bearers isn't something that just happens in creation. It's not something added on to creation. It's not a tangent or a mole or a beauty mark that's just there but isn't really serving a purpose. Creation and history and everything that has happened in this world, all of reality has been and is leading to the salvation of Christ's sheep. That is what all the, world, the wars have been about. That is what all the grass and the flowers growing right now and the trees blooming is about. It is about the salvation of Christ's sheep. This isn't just some tangent that we talk about. This is reality that we live and move and have our being in. That all of Christ's sheep will be brought into His fold. That all of Christ's enemies will be put under His feet. 
and that all things in heaven and on earth would be united in him, leading to the coming of a new heavens and a new earth. Do you realize that this is the point of reality? It's not debate points or topics for presumption or inquiry. We can inquire about them, but they are not to be put on trial as though we, as Eve at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, put God's word as a hypothesis and man's words or, or Satan's words as a hypothesis, and we are the judges to adjudicate between the two. This is the origin of sin. Beloved, God has spoken, and it is. And He has put us in all things into reality to serve this purpose. All things united in Christ. All things under His feet. His people gathered together. Holy. Worshipping Him. Going out into the world as His ambassadors. This is the point of reality. This is the point and purpose of everything that ever has happened, everything that is happening right now, including the words coming out of my mouth, including your heart beating, you breathing, the air. It is everything or everything that ever will happen. And I know that it can be hard for us to grab a hold of, beloved, but if all things indeed are working together for our good, then literally everything that ever has, is, or will happen is for your salvation. Reality is about God glorifying Himself in His people. You, today, not just people back in the Reformation, not just early church fathers, not just people who will come to Christ in the next hundred years, but you today. Reality is for you, co-heirs of all things with Christ, your Savior and King. It is the point of what has been created so far on days one through three, heaven and earth, darkness and light, sky and sea, land and vegetation. And it is the point of what we will see created on days four through six, sun, moon, stars, and their travels through the sky. All things here in Genesis 1 are made not for their own sakes, but to serve the purpose for which God has made them, which again is to be the stage upon which God glorifies himself in the redemption of a people receiving his mercy and grace and in the judgment of the wicked receiving his justice. Brothers and sisters, this is the definition of good. And it is why we see here in the creation and account God constantly making and then seeing that what he has made is good. Good and goodness comes from being formed by God and conformed to the purposes for which he has made us. So how do the things of days 2 and 3 of creation here in Genesis 1 serve to glorify God? What are oceans and seas? What are the heavens and the earth? What are plants and fruit trees? Beloved, they are just tools in the hand of their creator to protect you, to provide for you, to test you, and to guide you to the end for which you were created, which is to glorify Him and enjoy Him. Not just in this time, but forever. And doesn't God take this image of fruitfulness that we see here on day three of creation where the earth rises up out of the waters and then produces fruit that rises up out of the earth? Doesn't God take what happens here on day three and use it throughout the scriptures to speak of his people multiplying and blessing and being a blessing to all the nations of the earth? Beloved, we know, as the Apostle Paul instructs us, that these things were written for our benefit, whom the end of ages has come upon. And your Savior was not far away from these days of creation here in Genesis 1, but as we have read in John 1, all things were made through him. Hear these things, beloved, and then look 
on this Resurrection Sunday with eyes of faith, eyes that look beyond just the physical facts of days two and three of creation here and see Christ. See Christ as you are looking at our passage today by remembering what we spoke about last week and the theme established here in Genesis 1 of creation out of water by word and spirit into new creation. Remember that theme and then think of the importance of day three in the Bible. And consider it now on this Lord's Day, especially when we celebrate our Savior's resurrection from the grave, and then see here on day three, dry land, earth rising out of its watery grave in order to bring forth life and fruitfulness and the abundance of this first sinless creation. See these first fruits of the old creation here on day three. See these first fruits that came forth from this earth that rose up out of the waters on the third day. And then think about that third day later in Scripture when our Savior rose up from the grave, when Christ rose from the grave. And what is he called in 1 Corinthians 15? He is called the first fruits of the new creation. See this third day scene here in our passage in Genesis this morning, beloved, and, she, and see the shadow of the resurrected Christ cast over it. Think of Christ here in the third day and consider that as the earth brings forth fruit that yields seed after its kind, so too your Savior produces fruit after His kind. The first Adam fell short of the glory of God. And the fruit that he produced after his kind is death. But the second Adam, who did not fall short of the glory of God, but attained to it, produces fruit after his kind, which is resurrection life. Beloved, realize and understand that just as Christ was the first fruits of the new creation, risen out of the earthy grave on the third day, like the earth here on the third day of creation, he is also yielding spiritual seed. He is bearing spiritual fruit after his kind. Hear these truths in the words of the Apostle Paul who says in 1 Corinthians 15, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born in the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you were conceived and you were born in the image of the man of dust. But you have been purchased by the blood of the man from heaven. And though you were of the dust and you used to bear fruit in keeping in your life, of the man of dust. Now you have been born again of the man of heaven. And in being born again a new creation, you bear the image of the man of heaven, the second Adam, who has life in himself and has given you spiritual life. And make no mistake, beloved, he has purchased you, he has made you his, and he has work in you, and he expects you to produce fruit that reflects that truth in your life, that you are His, that you are after His kind. This is your purpose, beloved, that as citizens of a new creation, you would bear fruit after your kind. The fruit of life given to you through the proclamation of the gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of, of Christ, the gospel is the power of God to salvation, and now you are to spread that seed of life by proclaiming the gospel wherever you go. 
You are ambassadors of that new creation that is coming. And your king has been given all authority in this old creation such that there is nowhere in this world and no place in this world where that message of the gospel is forbidden. Oh, there will be many men of dust that will hate that message and will persecute the messengers just as he did our Savior. But are we better than our teacher? Are we not to expect persecution from the men of dust? But beloved, our Savior has been given all authority in heaven and on earth and instructs us that regardless what the men of dust say or do to us about this message, there is no place on God's earth that we can go where our King's message is not authorized and should not be welcomed. Brothers and sisters, just as days two and three of creation were made to serve you as God's image bearers, you have been made a new creation that you would serve the purpose of the man from heaven. To neglect this purpose in your life is to go back to verse two of Genesis one. It is to live a life that is without form is void, is empty, not formed according or put to its use. Brothers and sisters, if you look at your life and it resembles verse 2, the formlessness and the void of Genesis 1, more than it resembles the fruitfulness of day 3, well, brothers and sisters, if you examine yourself and you see this about yourself, rededicate yourself today. Repurpose yourself on this Resurrection Sunday to live for your King, to have zeal for Him, and to worship Him, and to be fruitful for Him as His ambassadors. And dear unbelieving friend among us today, you can try and fill your life with all the things of this world, and you may be successful in doing so. But what will it profit you if you fill your life with the things of this world for 70, 80, 90, 100 years and lose your soul for eternity? Oh, friend, our desire is for you to join us as new creations in Christ, forgiven of your sin and your misery in this world, removed from the judgment and misery of the world to come, and instead to be destined with us for eternal life that our Savior has instructed us has benefits both in this life and in the one to come. Friend, unbelieving friend among us, I pray that on this Resurrection Sunday that you would hear this message clearly, that the Spirit would move in you and convict you of your sin, that you would know and that you would feel godly sorrow that you have sinned against your Creator, and that you would be convinced by the Spirit that He will condemn and punish you in hell, and that you cannot escape His righteous judgment, no matter what you do in this world, no matter how many barriers to protect yourself you put around you, you cannot escape His righteous judgment. Hear that, friend, and then know on the authority of God's Word that He so loved the world that He sent His one and only Son into the world. The second Adam to save anyone and everyone who would repent of their sins and look to Him in faith. Oh, dear friend, hear this pardon that is being offered to you this morning and do not harden your heart against it. The gospel that you have just heard is not a suggestion, friend. It is a command of your Creator. You must repent. You must look to Christ in faith or you will perish in your sins, not just in this time, but eternally in the world to come. Oh, friend, may God grant you repentance and faith today and raise you from your spiritual death on this Resurrection Sunday. Well, as we close today and prepare 
to enter into a time of reflection on what we have heard from our passage today. Surely, brothers and sisters, we must reflect upon and consider our purpose here in this old creation as followers of Christ, as new creations in Him. To put it most directly, beloved, the source of your joy as followers of Christ is to give your lives, to give your thoughts, to give your energies, to give your resources, to give all that you can in order to serve the purpose for which you have been made. And beloved, make no mistake about it. If you belong to Christ, the level of your joy in life will be equal will correspond to the level at which you are dedicating yourself to the purpose for which you have been made and remade in your Savior. Whether you're married or single, whether you're parents of little ones or whether you have older children out of the house, whether you are young and still in your parents' house at the beginning of your life or in the twilight of your years, just trying to finish well, your goal in whatever stage of life you find yourself in is to fulfill the purpose for which your Savior purchased you, which is to find your joy in obeying Him and in being fruitful for Him. For some of us who have passed the age of youth and vigor, this means being prayer warriors. This means we serve our Savior in this stage of life by being encouragement to others. Because of the stage of life that we're in, that's all that we can do. Beloved, if that is you, do so with zeal. Do so with thanksgiving. Do so heartily as unto Christ your King with thankfulness that He has so formed your life and brought you to this stage of your life that this is how you get to serve Him in prayer and as an encourager. For some of us, this means going to our workplaces daily and seeking to be salt and light there in our workplaces, looking for opportunities to have gospel conversations with our unbelieving co-workers or to be sources of encouragement for our believing co-workers. And it is a daily grind. We wake up, we get our coffee, we go to work, we do our work, we come home, we go to bed, we rise again, and we do it again. Day after day after day. Well, beloved, if this is the stage of life that Christ has you in, Bloom where you're planted. Do this labor of being light and salt where you're at with zeal as unto Christ your King with thanksgiving and praise to Him that this is the stage of life that He has you in for His glory and for your good. For others, this means changing dirty diapers and constantly preparing meals for our families. Oh, beloved, if this is you, do it with zeal, heartily as unto Christ your King, that He has given you this stage of your life where you can seek to bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord to urge His disciplines and His instructions on them, to urge the gospel on them. Do not despise your children for the sake of the lost out there, God has given them to you to nurture. Love them and love that stage of your life. Pour into them and do not be dissatisfied with it as though your king would give you something better to do. Oh, beloved, teach them to honor you as their parents and honor their fathers. Love your children, love your husbands and do this stage of your life with zeal. Do not despise it. For others of us who are younger, this means obeying our parents, honoring our fathers and our mothers as we prepare for that next stage of life where we are at, out on our own. Oh, beloved, if that is you, do it with zeal. Do not be despised for your youth. 
Let's be, be an example of holiness and godliness. Speaking honorably about your parents, not rolling your eyes at them or dragging them down with your words, dragging them through the mud with your parents. Honor them. Honor Christ, your King, who has put you in this stage of life. Do it with thankfulness that He has given you parents that love you and are pouring into you. Do this heartily as unto your King with thanksgiving to Him and pleading with Him that during this stage of life you would serve Him well while He prepares you and directs your desires and steps for that next stage of life. But regardless of what stage of life you are in, your purpose, all of these things are to glorify God, to enjoy your Savior by serving the purpose which He has made you for in the place that He has put you in. Serve your purpose. And if you're not sure what that looks like in your particular circumstances, this is why your Shepherd, your chief shepherd, has given you under-shepherds. This is why he has given pastors to you. He has given us to you to help us, for us to help shepherd you through this stage of your life, that you would have the joy of your salvation. And that you could see how you could discover, not God's plan for your life, as though he's got a unique individual thing, that he's fitting everything in for you, but how your life fits into his plan. Beloved, make no mistake about it as we think about these things, though. Our God is not mocked. He has instructed us that we will reap what we sow. If we, reap, if we sow in all these ways sparingly and begrudgingly, Grinding our teeth at the stage of life God has given us, and that is what we will reap from this stage of life that God has us in. Our Savior was serious when he said in Matthew 7, every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Beloved, as you think about your own, the own fruit that's coming forth from your life, we know that if we look and part of our tree and part of our fruit looks diseased, we know that the solution for that is not to hide it, not to massage it, not to try to make bad fruit good, not to try to justify it, not to put lipstick on a pig. But the solution is to repent of it, to turn into a purpose, to fertilize this tree, to cultivate this tree, to trim off the dead branches on this tree to nourish it with water and sunshine, asking God to pour His rain on it, that it would bear good fruit. Repentance and faith in Christ is the answer when we see diseased fruit. And for unbelievers, this is speaking of you, because we know that, because it says, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the only escape of that is the pardon that I offered to you earlier. Repentance of your sins, faith in the Savior your Creator has sent. So brothers and sisters in Christ, as we think about these things, we prepare to pray and meditate on these things for a few minutes. Abide in your Savior. Be satisfied in His wisdom in this stage of your life. Serve His purposes with your life, the purpose for which He has made you. Be fruitful and multiply after the kind of the man of heaven, not the man of dust. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for how you instructed your people Israel 
in days two and three of creation that the fruitfulness and the bounty of the earth do not depend on arousing idols and gods, but it just depends on your word, on your sustaining grace. We thank you that you have provided for us and that you still provide for us through our earth that yields its vegetation to us. And Father, we ask that you would help us to learn these lessons of fruitfulness, that we would learn these lessons of earth coming up out of water to produce fruit after its kind, that we would examine ourselves honestly, and that you would help us to get rid of dead branches in our lives cut them off, to make no provision for the flesh, the old man, but to constantly be putting on that new man, striving after that holiness without which we will not see you, trusting that you are at work in us to will and to work for your good pleasure. Oh, Father, we come to you as your little children, not seeking to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, but pleading with you to grant us your spirit and an understanding of your word that we would repent of ungodliness and unholiness in our life and we would seek to be fruitful ambassadors for your kingdom. Father, we know that if you do not build this house, that we labor in vain. And so we come to you as our Heavenly Father, knowing that you are ready and able to do us good. And we ask for it in faith, trusting that you will. For we believe your word and your promise that you will be with us to the end of the age, that you will see to it, that we will be presented holy and blameless before you, and that your son will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Oh, Father, help us. Now we pray in Christ's name. Amen.